today is from Psalm 37. Uh, there are 40 verses, so everyone can sit. <laughs> do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land, enjoy peace and prosperity. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. But their swords will pierce their own hearts and their bows will be broken. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will enjoy plenty. But the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed, they will go up in smoke. The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, but those he curses will be destroyed. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be a blessing. Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. Wrongdoers will be completely destroyed. The offspring of the wicked will perish. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouths of the righteous utter wisdom and their tongues speak what is just. The law of their God is in their hearts. Their feet do not slip. The wicked lie in wait for the righteous intent on putting them to death. But the Lord will not leave them in the power of the wicked or let them be condemned when brought to trial. Hope in the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are destroyed, you will see it. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a luxuriant native tree. But he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Consider the blameless, observe the upright. A future awaits those who seek peace, 
but all sinners will be destroyed. There will be no future for the wicked. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The word of the Lord. This may be a curious choice to have that entire thing read. I guess I'll explain that a little bit later, but thank you so much for reading that. Um, we could do a lot worse than to just read a chunk of God's word and be edified at least by that. So, um, so hello, Gateway. My name is Chad Ryan. I'm up here um, because I guess maybe two reasons. So I know Pastor Kyle. Um, I was a youth pastor for a handful of years in the area up in Huxley and elsewhere and got to know him a bit um, during his time in the area. And uh, my wife, Chelsea, and I, uh, we consider ourselves kind of like friends of Gateway. Um, so we came um, to worship with, with you all for a season um, when we were in between ministry positions and churches. And um, the meaning of Gateway to us um, in our hearts far outweighs the time we spent here. Um, as people had said at Pastor Kyle's farewell, that he and, and this community and this place um, uh, is a place of healing, and that's kind of how we feel about Gateway. So uh, we're happy to be with you all this morning um, and humbled to be sitting under the word um, together. So the psalmist in the first psalm, Psalm 1, says that a righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water, while the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. So this idea that the, the righteous are, are sturdy and, and lasting, while the wicked are is ephemeral, is that the right word? I should have Googled that. Yeah, okay, some nods, yeah. Um, and, and, and not lasting. Um, but in Psalm 37, verse 35 in particular, the psalmist says that he has seen a wicked person spreading himself like a, I think it said a luxuriant native tree, or an, I was in the ESV if you're following along in a Bible or a translation, spreading himself like a green laurel tree. And the feeling is that the righteous often seem more like chaff tossed about by the wind in this life, right? And I too have seen this. I've seen a man lie, cheat, and steal his way even to the highest office in the land. And sadly, that applies to, you know, more than one person. So technically, the referent is ambiguous there. Um, <laughs> you know, it seems to be the MO of many of our politicians to differing degrees. But aside from politicians, we can all probably think of someone we know that seems to have gotten further ahead than life, in life than perhaps their immorality or unethical conduct should have allowed them to. And we can likewise think of a high-integrity, Jesus-like person who seems to have been robbed in life. Psalm 37 assumes this classic problem. The world that is like the plane of human affairs has a penchant for blessing or privileging the wicked and their wickedness. The psalmist does not provide an apologetic for why God allows us to be so. The psalmist just assumes this very obvious reality that we all experience. Now, without getting to the bottom of why God would allow such a backwards reality, I think we can peel one layer off the onion. If God has good reason to allow us to make free choices, then the way is opened up for the lives of the righteous to be impinged upon by the choices of the wicked. It means that the selfish can take from the selfless, that the violent can kill the peaceful, that the greedy can exploit the needy. And so it's not hard to see how in our world, might can triumph over right. 
Rather than plumbing the depths of the why question, and for that you can see the book of Job, I guess, um, the psalmist is more concerned with impressing two things upon us. God's promise for the ultimate vindication of the righteous and what we are to do in the meantime before his promise is fulfilled. The vindication of the righteous, that's a familiar principle, but I think it's an underappreciated one. And so a large part of our exploration of Psalm 37 this morning is going to be to this end, to appreciate God's desire and promise to vindicate righteousness. Of course, we know that vindication belongs to the righteous and not to the wicked. That seems pretty unobjectionable. But I imagine that um, many of us are uncomfortable expressing verbally the hope that the righteous will be vindicated. I don't know about you, but I didn't pray in those terms about the righteous and the wicked this week. I wonder if the terms themselves, the righteous and the wicked, might grate on our ears a little bit. We might resist them because the terms are easily weaponized. Um, to create an in-group, out-group dynamic, and we're all too eager to sort ourselves into the righteous and them into the wicked. Or we might resist the adjective righteous because we unconsciously conflate it with being self-righteous, which we know to be wrong. Or we might resist these categorical terms because we're convicted by how unrighteous we are, and because we do not want to assume the worst of those who might technically fall into that wicked category. And in the end, isn't it, as Sultan Nietzsche said, that the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being? Everyone's a mixed bag, right? So what use are these labels of the righteous and the wicked? Well, if the righteous grates on our ears, it's going to be difficult to appreciate the promise that the righteous will be vindicated. Yet the righteous and the wicked, these are categories employed in the Bible and in the psalm. I'm sure you heard those terms over and over again as it was read. Perhaps we can stomach them more if we don't take their use as license to assign specific persons to one bucket or the other. And if we don't consider them to be absolute terms, meaning something like sinless on the one hand or utterly sinful on the other. I think we're on safe ground if we think of the righteous and the wicked as describing persons that have two different orientations to living. On the one hand, the righteous have a, a care and a will to conform their lives increasingly to God's standards. That means to be good as God is good. On the other hand, the wicked do not share this care or will to conform their lives to God's standards. In fact, they may care so much about themselves that they are willing to leverage evil means for their own desired ends. So yes, it's true, we're all mixed bags, but these are two general ways of life that go in pretty opposite directions. So with that understanding, Let's get under the hood of the principle of the vindication of the righteous by asking Psalm 37 this question. What kind of life does God want to vindicate? What kind of life does God want to vindicate, to reward, to privilege, to bless? I asked for the reader to read the psalm in its entirety because that's going to serve as our only substantial exposure to it this morning. And if it felt difficult to follow, it's because the structure isn't logical and because we weren't hearing it in Hebrew. Not that I can follow it in Hebrew either, but those who know Hebrew um, can hear the mnemonic device running from beginning to end. It's an acrostic, so it goes from, from A to Z, or from Aleph to Tau in this case. And that's important to note because it relieves you and I of the responsibility of finding any sort of logical structure to the psalm, any sort of linear development of thought. It actually reads more like an alphabetized string of Proverbs with a few themes, words, and sounds repeated and bouncing around throughout. And that's kind of was the idea this morning behind uh, 
that exposure of the whole psalm is just getting those to reverberate kind of in our head. Our exploration is going to be synthetic, I think is the word. We're going to be pulling bits of the psalm together to see some composite pictures that we're going to put together. As a whole, the psalm paints for us two portraits of the righteous and the wicked and two landscapes, if we use that word loosely, of their respective faiths. And when we see these pictures more clearly and look at them side by side, I think we'll be in a better position to understand the vindication of the righteous and to feel it as good news. That's kind of the goal this morning, is to feel the good news of that principle. What kind of life does God want to vindicate? Psalm 37 gives us a portrait of the righteous that the bare term by itself doesn't capture, and the psalm does this by way of contrast with a portrait of the wicked. So let's paint these portraits, shall we? Um, we're going to be hopping around a bunch, so you don't have to follow along, or you, or you can. I'll try and you know, give the verse reference um, before I pull from them. So the first contrast between the righteous and the wicked we see in verse 14. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. So here's a picture of using power to dominate, which tends towards violence. And so I want you to imagine... We're going to be talking a lot about posture this morning. Imagine the wicked in a posture of standing over. They're bringing down the poor and the needy. They're standing over them in their power. And by contrast, verse 37, it says, Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. The wicked use their power to stand over. But the righteous, whether powerful or powerless, are people of peace. They have a distaste for violence and are even willing to absorb wrongs done to them in order to make peace. So I want you to picture the peacemaker in the opposite stance or posture of the violent. They are those who come under those they are making peace with in a posture of pleading for peace instead of demanding it by standing over in a greater show of force. Another contrast between the righteous and the wicked, if you look to verse 21, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. And further support in verse 26 about the righteous, he is ever lending generously. That the wicked are takers and the righteous are givers isn't much surprising, but it's amazing how often we find ourselves in situations in which we face this choice to be one or the other, to have a posture of giving versus taking. I realized the ridiculousness of my own heart the other day when... Chelsea, that's my wife up there. She and I, um, we went to Texas Roadhouse for dinner, and we, will, we were able to drop off our youngest. Um, we have four kids. Um, and we dropped off our youngest, Harbor, at a friend's house to be babysat for free. Uh, after we were done eating, I su successfully connived the, I don't know if that's the right word. It sounds too evil, but um, it is an example that reflects badly on me, so we'll go for it. Uh, I convinced the waitress, I, I guess I'll go with, into giving us four more of those sweet, sweet, warm, buttered rolls. You know what I'm talking about? You don't even have to. I, that is like the whole deal for me for Texas Roadhouse. And I'm weird. I don't even like putting butter on it. I just like them. I just pop them in my mouth just as they are. So I, I love those things. That's like the whole reason I, I like going. Well, Chelsea had the idea on the way back to pick up Harbor to offer our friends who babysat to offer them the rolls, an idea which I instinctually scoffed at. I was like, no, no way, no way. Um, in like a split second. It was amazing. Like, just like that, my heart came up with a short list of justifications for why that meager act of generosity just wasn't necessary and why 
It actually made more sense to, for the roles to be my leftovers. My heart should have just recognized what my wife clearly did in the moment. It feels so obvious now. Um, we received free babysitting. It's pretty expensive normally to, you know, um, we, I don't like to fork out for babysitting, even though I value greatly people taking care of my children and loving on them. Um, we received free babysitting, which far outweighed the token of gratitude of a bag of rolls, and yet I thought giving the rolls would be excessively generous. Uh, is this not far from the spirit of the wicked, who borrows but does not pay back, who is eager to take but reluctant to give? On the other hand, an example of the spirit of the righteous comes easily to my mind in this space among you all. One of my favorite moments in your liturgy is in the generosity liturgy, which we just said together. I love that, oh my gosh, so much. And insofar as liturgy forms us, I mean, what a way to be formed with, with these words. That you, as something to the effect of that you would trust us with such a little thing as money, a little thing as money. When the righteous person described in Psalm 37 gives generously and lends freely, I can imagine the recipient saying, thank you so much, and the righteous giver just saying, no biggie. When I'm worried about money, sometimes my wife will say, it's just money. And she's right, it's, it's just money. Not to diminish the importance that it has, but like, it is in the end, just money. In a world that can feel like it's all money, which causes us to hold on to it for dear life. What a surprising and beautiful prayer that emphasizes the littleness of money. For that truth, when we believe it, opens us up to give in life-giving ways and to give until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. It's amazing. We can think of the greedy and the generous as having the same posture as the violent and the peaceable, respectively. The greedy in their self-interest stand over others in their need while the generous come down from their place of fortune and come under to consider the interests of others as being more important than their own. A final contrast between the righteous and the wicked, starting in verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. In their anger, the wicked take things into their own hands, and in doing so, they stand over God, unwilling to wait on his justice because they'd rather plot and anger. Contrast this with the righteous standard conveyed by these commands. This is actually the very beginning of the psalm. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. And continuing on in verse 7, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. And verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the thrice repeated do not fret, um, Hebrew and literature scholar Robert Alter opts for this more concrete translation of the verb, be not incensed, because he sees the etymology as having to do with something about getting, uh, like kindling a fire. Be not incensed. Be angry at injustice because it's unjust, but do not let anger reign or consume you. Rather than fretting or being incensed, the righteous are called to a different set of priorities. Starting in verse three, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice or vindication as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Instead of stewing and anger 
and then taking things into their own hands. The righteous wait on the Lord and hope for their coming vindication and are so freed up then to focus on living uprightly instead of being consumed with hand-wringing over the flourishing of the wicked. The wicked and the righteous once again can be pictured as standing above and coming under respectively, but this time in reference to God. The wicked are angry plotters going over God's head. The righteous are hopeful waiters, if you will. That sounds kind of weird. Hopeful waiters um, coming under God's wing. So here's the composite picture we've painted from Psalm 37. The righteous are peaceable with their enemies, generous with the needy and reliant on God. If the righteous were captured in a portrait, the picture, picture their posture in these different relationships. The righteous come under. They seek peace from their enemies, not dominance over them. They set the needs of others above their own wants. They submit to trust in God, which entails the posture of prostration. In Psalm 37, the portrait of the righteous person is one whose righteousness consistently comes under. It has that posture. Now, I'd like to suggest a word which is found in the psalm itself, or at least in some translations, that captures fairly well this coming under posture of the righteous. And that word is meekness. The righteous are the meek. Verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land. And what is meekness? Well, it, it just depends on who you ask. Um, if you ask Merriam-Webster or an Old Testament scholar or a New Testament scholar or one of the Bible Project guys, they are all going to give you some different answers. At least that's what I found. The meaning seems to hinge on the answer to this question. Is meekness the posture of the spiritually humble? Or is meekness the posture of the socioeconomically afflicted? In other words, is, is, meason, is meekness a chosen virtue or an unchosen state of being? Are the meek those who choose a lower station or has life brought them down there? Psalm 37 highlights both of these as characteristics of the righteous. On the one hand, they are called upright and the blameless. On the other hand, they are the poor and the needy. In this psalm, the righteous, by virtue of their affliction from their enemies, are in an unchosen state of meekness. They have no choice but to come under those who dominate over them. And yet, what we see is that they, from their postures, that they lean into their meek status. They lean into their under position by be, being people of peace and generosity and who trust in God. Acts all requiring such a coming under kind of posture. This means that anyone even the unafflicted, can lean into meekness by adopting the same posture. Now, we could use the word humility instead of meek or meekness. It's a near synonym and more readily understood um, and more used by most of us, but I don't think we want to lose the element of affliction bound up in the meaning of meekness because the vindication that God promises the meek is not indifferent to their affliction. Neither do we want meekness to lose its moral, spiritual quality by defining it as mere weakness due to affliction, as if God were interested in weakness for the sake of weakness. If God is interested in weakness, which he is, he is interested in the kind of weakness that relies on God's strength and the kind of weakness or apparent weakness exhibited in humble acts of love for the sake of others. Now we can go back and answer our initial question, what kind of life does God desire to vindicate? And the answer I submit to you from this psalm, if we were to sum it up, is 
a meek life. While the world privileges or blesses those who parade themselves in a perpetual power stance, God desires to bless the meek. But this psalm goes further than to say that God desires this end, as if he just wants it, as if it's just his wish dream. More than that, he promise it, promises it. That's the amazing thing is what God desires, he can actually, he has the power and the will to enact and to see through. He promises it. We see this promise over and over in the psalm as the fates of the wicked and the righteous are spelled out. As the psalm paints portraits of the wicked and the righteous, so it also paints loosely landscapes for each of their fates. So here's the basic sketch of both groups' fates. We see it in verse 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. The general landscape is the land, which the psalmist refers to six times in the psalm. And in every case, it is the righteous who will get to inherit and dwell in the land. And so the landscape for the wicked is, well, ends up being no landscape at all. The wicked fade from view of the land. Five times they are said to be cut off, and three of those times specifically picture them cut off from the land. More than that, though, the wicked don't just fade from the land, they fade away, period. We see this a number of times in verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. Verse 20, but the, the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. In verse 35, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Finally, in verse 38, but transgressors, transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The faded landscape of the wicked is no landscape at all. It is exile from the land and into nothingness. Think back to our portrait of the wicked, portrayed as violent and greedy. What's interesting is that despite the wicked's best attempts to win the world for themselves with the sword and through taking from others more than they give. It says in verse 15, their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. The arms of the wicked, which secured for them this worldly abundance, the arms of the wicked shall be broken. In other words, their very means of securing privilege and blessing in the world, power moves over the weak, are revealed to be self-destructive and ultimately powerless over the meek when God comes into the picture. For the fate of the righteous, we actually get the opposite picture. They dwell and delight in the land forever, it says a number of times. Verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 18, their heritage will remain forever. And in verse 37, mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. And back to verse four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Those who came under their enemies to make peace will be at peace. Those who came under the needy to give will be given to. Those who came under God, choosing to trust and to delight in him in the midst of their affliction, they will be delighted forever. Clearly, in the final analysis, the means of meekness are more powerful than the means of the wicked to secure blessing. In your mind's eye, look at the portrait of the righteous person in the landscape of their fate. Humble in posture, in the land, dwelling in delight. 
Now look at the wicked and their fate. Once a portrait of an imposing person dominating the entire canvas, but now the canvas is blank. The principle of the vindication of the righteous is pictured concretely and succinctly, succinctly in Psalm 37 in verse 11, where it says, the meek shall inherit the land. There are at least two ways I can think of to deepen our appreciation of this truth, to not just believe it, but to see it as good news. First, when you consider how the, wor the world and how it operates, the meek are the least likely to come out on top. Currently, many of those who lay substantial claim to the earth in terms of wealth or political power are, in my opinion, greedy egomaniacs. I don't think I'm alone in sharing that assessment, right? Not all, but yeah, you know, many. And given our penchant for routinely handing political power to such people, like in a democracy, it's crazy that we do that. No one wants who we have, but it's who we have, right? Oh my word. It's hard to see how right will ever be able to prevail over might. I just don't see it just as it is, like the status quo. It's just so the promise that God will ultimately hand over the earth as a gift to the meek is as surprising as it is relieving. Picture the end, the eschaton, the new heavens and the new earth like a big surprise party. Surprise, look who's standing there. Look who's standing, still standing in God's new creation. Those who could not or did not stand in this life. I think we will enjoy that surprise. There's an artist I like, John Van Dusen, um, who captures this feeling of joyful surprise when heaven is revealed in his song, If I Get to Heaven. He sings, If I get to heaven, there will be a table, stretching beyond where eyes can see, far beyond where eyes can see. If I get to heaven, there will be a great choir singing the song of the redeemed, far beyond where eyes can see. And I'll look around with tears in my eyes. I'll see the heavy laden that I despised, wrongfully executed, countless women kicked aside, former slaves leading the chorus, singing jubilee in time, far beyond where eyes can see. A second way to deepen our appreciation of God's promise to vindicate the righteous is to find the origin of this promise in God's desire. God grants a, a cosmic inheritance to the meek because he cherishes their meekness. It's not just an expectation, it's something that God loves. Almighty, omnipotent God prizes meekness. The one who is above all sees the supreme beauty of coming under for the sake of others. God's desire for meekness is so strong that he created a world which cannot forever abide with the selfish and power hungry, for it will ultimately spit them out. God created a world which only the meek are fit to dwell in. The wicked may try to win the, the earth with power, but the earth is not anyone's for the taking. The earth is a gift of God, and he chooses to give it as an inheritance to those fit for it, the meekness-shaped righteous. That phrase, the meek shall inherit that land, that rings a bell, doesn't it? Or if I were to say, the meek shall inherit the earth, maybe that rings a bell. Jesus actually steals... Uh, the Greek Old Testament wording nearly word for word here in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 when he says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The Greek word for earth and land is often the same and actually the Hebrew equivalent also does the same kind of double duty. 
And most commentators see Jesus' appropriation of this promise in Psalm 37. Um, they see an extension from uh, the geographic, just the land, to the cosmic, the earth. So Jesus, as he does, makes things greater. <laughs> in this beatitude, Jesus affirms the bare principle that the righteous will be vindicated and the concrete promise that the meek are blessed and will inherit the earth. But Jesus does more than just teach this. He himself is an enactment of it. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland points out that Jesus, when given the opportunity to describe with words the essence of his very heart, he chooses the word gentle. He says gentle and lowly. And that word gentle is the same word in the Beatitudes and the Greek version of Psalm 37 as meek. So meekness is a word that actually gets to the core of who Jesus is, what God is like when he becomes man. The descriptions of the righteous in Psalm 37 fit Jesus to a T if you were to, to kind of set Jesus side by side with what we read in the Psalm. In fact, I had this sense when I thought of this that um, because Jesus had part of Psalm 37 on his lips in the Beatitudes, that means he was familiar with it. I could see him praying and reading this Psalm. Jesus, the righteous one, conducted his life and ministry with the very posture of meekness described in the Psalm. And Jesus himself was not exempt from the problem the psalm was written to address. The wicked triumphed over him by means of their wickedness and in spite of his impeccable righteousness. What would be Jesus' vindication? I remember hearing N.T. Wright describe Jesus' resurrection as God's act of vindication of Jesus' obedient life and death. This means the resurrection was not a mere demonstration of God's power to do miracles. Neither was it a mere mechanism that God used to bring about eternal life for Jesus after his death and for us with him. Jesus' resurrection was his due for living the life he lived and dying the death he died. The meek posture God desires for all who would live in his creation, Jesus possessed and demonstrated in his life and death for our sakes. And so Jesus was granted resurrection life. But even more on the nose with the promise that the meek shall inherit the earth. Note what God grants Jesus after the resurrection. In Jesus' own words at the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus, the meek Messiah, inherits the earth. If we are ever in doubt of God's promise to vindicate the righteous, to grant the meek the earth as an inheritance, we can remember that God made good on his promise when it came to Jesus. And so we have reason for confidence for those of us in Christ. Gateway, if nothing else this morning, bask in the good news today that God's heart and sure promise is to vindicate the meek, to give them the earth, and the greater news that he himself became meek for our sakes and was vindicated, inheriting the throne over all heaven and earth forever. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the bread and the wine symbols of your meekness, which we get to tangibly and intimately experience together and receive as a gift. You left your throne in heaven to come under to the lowest place for love of us. And the Father saw to it that after after you would receive your due, all the heavens, all the earth, and all the praise. So we thank you. We praise you. We trust in your promise to vindicate the meek 
We wait for you until you see to it. And we ask you for the strength and wisdom to be meek as you were until you come. Amen.